Matthew 26, 1-13 is the text of our message this morning. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what he has done will also be told in memory of her. Thus says the word of God. Would you pray with me? We hear the clock ticking in this passage, Lord. We know what's coming. We cringe. Can it be so that your sinless Son would continue to march towards the cross on our behalf? Can it be so that he would allow himself to be touched by sinful man? Can it be so that he could receive worship from such imperfect people. Oh, it can. And this passage tells us that we have a costly Christ because he's a savior. We praise him and we want to magnify him. And Father, during the preaching of the word of God, the foolishness of the preaching, may it become wisdom to the ears of our hearts, and may we become like Him whom we love, less like us, and more like Him. And may the love of our hearts this morning, by hearing His Word, may it be kindled all the hotter. Drive our devotion deep, Lord, by obedience to the Word. Let us not only be hearers and become hypocrites, Father, let's become obedient unto the words of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Matthew is careful to point out in verse number 3 that while Jesus is meeting together with his disciples, that the priests and, and the Sanhedrin are plotting for his murder. I want you to notice something, at least from a historical point of view, a chronological point of view, that, G, that Jesus... 
uh, is about ready to be crucified, but it is not on the timeline of the priests. It will not be on the timeline of the Roman law. You see, according to verse number 3, the timeline for the religious leaders was let the Passover pass over so that we can crucify Christ without an uproar. Remember just three days ago that Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. There has been quite a tumultuous thing. He has become very popular among the people. They're putting the robes out and, and just throngs of people are lining the streets and shouting Hosanna and believing that He is the coming King, the coming conqueror. And the Jewish religious leaders, they've been tracking Him all along and He is nothing but a threat to them. But they don't want to risk some sort of uproar. They don't want to risk this uh, catching Him and, and crucifying Him uh, to, to being some sort of uh, uh, overturned because of popular vote. So they want to wait until the people disperse, until the people leave Jerusalem after the Passover. But God is going to be in charge of the timeline of the crucifixion of His Son. Over and over in the New Testament, and throughout, really throughout prophetic Scripture, we find that God is the one who is marching His Son, Jesus, to the cross at His time. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. It will not be that Jesus is a victim. It will not be that, that man is in charge of all of this. As Peter would exclaim in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 3, that, this was, that, that Jesus was murdered by man, but sacrificed by God. And so Matthew is showing us here. That's what verse 3 is doing here, by the way. That's what verse 3 and 4 and 5 are, are doing here. Matthew is showing you that God is driving this. And he's showing you behind the scenes. If you were kind of watching a movie, you know how it just goes from one you know, place to another place and you recognize something simultaneous is taking place. So too, in written form here, Matthew's doing the same. While Jesus is meeting with his disciples, the religious leaders are plotting to crucify Christ. But it won't be this week. It's Wednesday. And Jesus has been ministering in the temple and now has gone outside of Jerusalem and has shared his prophecy of the the doom of the temple and the return of the Son of Man. And now on his way out of Jerusalem and then just outside of Jerusalem, at a town called Bethany, here is a, a man who is named Simon. Simon is called Simon the leper. It would be like calling someone Simon the cancer. But the fact that he's called Simon the leper and that he's said to have a house tells us something, and we just we believe this, to be, um, to, to be true, that, that he no longer is a leper. He was always known to be a leper, at least in the recent past. He was always known to be a leper, but now he's not a leper. How do we know that? Well, he has a house, and lepers don't have houses. Everything is abandoned by their life because of the sickness. But now it seems that he's the host, and, it's, and it's a, he's a prominent figure. It's Simon the leper. Who else? What other Simon would it be? It's the one you remember that Jesus healed. It seems that Simon has some dealings and has some relationship with, with Mary and Martha and likely Lazarus, uh, their brother. And so he's putting together, he's hosting a, a great fellowship and apparently probably has a larger home. So we know that Mary and Martha are there, according to John and Mark, both tell this story, by the way. And matter of fact, use a little bit more words than Matthew uses to describe the happenings going on. We have 12 disciples, we have Jesus, we have Mary, Martha, Lazarus, we have Simon the leper, and probably more. And so we believe this probably a wealthy man. But Simon the leper invites Christ to his home, and there Jesus is, and it's Wednesday night of the Passion Week. It's Wednesday night. And Friday's coming. 
It's Wednesday night. And Jesus is in Bethany, the house of Simon the leper. And Matthew records in verse number 7, a woman came up to him, and, and um, I'm not sure why he doesn't use the name, but, but it is Mary. John tells us in John chapter 12, I think it's verse number 3 in his account of this passage, that it's Mary, Martha, Martha's sister. Martha's busy in the kitchen, and it's Mary who's out with Jesus. And you notice as this is taking place and as the beginning is being set up by Matthew, Matthew is, uh, by the way, included in the disciples here. There's, a, there's some self-deprecation or we would say some humility here by Matthew. By the way, all throughout the book of Matthew, whenever Matthew talks about the disciples doubting and fearing and challenging and, and denying, Matthew's one of them. And Matthew's in Bethany in the house of the leper. And Matthew's one of them who's, who is appalled that this woman will spill out this oil upon Jesus. Notice the disciples had gotten the teaching that we had talked about last week at the end of chapter 25. Notice that they had understood the teaching that if you give a cup of water in Jesus' name, right? It's like doing it to him. So here we have oil being spilled out unto Jesus. But could it not have been given to the poor? The oil was likely, what was included in this alabaster box, was likely about a year's wage. So take a, a salary, take your salary. That's a year's wage. Imagine, imagine breaking open this. It's a, just a, a once type of use box. And imagine breaking it open and, and pouring out a year's worth of wages. So it is, it is, I think, completely, we could be completely sympathetic to the disciples when they say, could this have not been used to serve many, many poor people? Because Jesus had just got done saying, go and give to the brothers who are poor. Go and visit them in prison. Go and give to them uh, your, your time and, and, and uh, care if they're sick. So they got that lesson. They've been tracking his teaching about taking care of the poor. But Mary recognizes something different. And by the way, this isn't meant to be a slight against men, but it, it is often, at least in my experience, that women are better listeners. I didn't hear any amens. But Mary has been listening. And yes, she may be heard about his lesson about giving a cup of water to the thirsty. But in the next moment, what's she doing? And what are the men doing? And so, when we look at this, and we look at the disciples' truth, the, the, the lesson that they're rehearsing and, and looking upon, this lesson is for us that we should take care of those who are in need. But that's still not as deep as this text wants us to go. And isn't it interesting, and it is, it is providential, it is arranged by God, ordered by the Holy Spirit, that this passage is right after we had just heard, go give to the poor. 
And now the disciples say, why aren't you giving to the poor? And Jesus says, you will always have the poor, but you need to give unto me. So let's look at some truths this morning. Number one, nothing is wasted on Jesus. Nothing is wasted on Jesus. Do you know what the disciples are really saying? The disciples were indignant, verse number 8. Why this, and everybody let's all say it together, why this waste? Why this waste? Had it been given to the poor in their minds, that would have certainly been a wonderful thing and a very godly thing to happen. And we rehearsed last, last time, last Lord's Day, how God has, is great in mercy and compassion. He desires for His people to be, to be exuding a godlike compassion from the beginning of Scriptures to the end. We are to care for those who are in need. This doesn't run against that. But this moment is about something even better than giving to the poor. It's about the priority of Jesus Christ. And the encapsulating truth, the encapsulating principle here is worship comes before service. Worship comes before service. Worship has priority over all of our ambitions and agendas. And by the way, by worship, I'm not saying, um, firstly, the church service. I'm talking, we're talking about in this truth in particular that our devotion to God, our adoration of God, the setting apart of our affections, the prioritizing of Him as supreme comes before everything else. That does happen collectively, corporately. We've, we've taught about this and we're learning about this. But this is a rebuke to us in our routine of private and public worship of the Lord. How often do we dismiss moments of private adoration and devotion to Christ because we have good things to do instead? How often do we dismiss spending, spending a moment in, in reflection, in adoration, in personal transaction with our Lord Jesus Christ and we justify it by having good things to do? But we know we will never waste anything on Jesus Christ. You can waste your time. Have you ever wasted time? All the time, right? Father, forgive us. You can waste your time. You can waste your money. Have you ever wasted money? Father, forgive us. We've wasted a lot of money. Have you ever wasted energy? Going on a wild goose chase or something that didn't work out? You can waste your time, money, and energy. But listen, you will never waste any of it on Jesus Christ. Nothing is wasted that's offered unto Jesus. No gift is too great in our display of love for Jesus Christ. What's going on 
simultaneously in this passage. And Matthew is using this, and, and when we read this with literary eyes, with eyes to critique the way in which he has set us up, he is showing us four different types of people in this passage. Number one, he's showing us the priests who want Jesus dead because he's worth more to them dead than alive. And by the way, ironically, isn't that what he is for us? But the priests are plotting. We see Judas, who in just mere moments is going to sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the cost of a slave. And he's amidst the disciples, indignant, but just like you and I might have been. We have the disciples who believe that Jesus isn't worth this type of display of devotion if it's at the cost of the poor. This was too great of a display of worship for Jesus. And we have Mary, who pours out upon Jesus a year's wage. And I know you've thought about this in the moments that we brought this up, but I mean, a year's wage is a year's wage, okay? Whether it's whatever it was then or given the inflation now, I guess a year's wage. Just whatever it is. It's not insignificant. So we have four different types of situations going on, don't we? So in looking at these different people and their look upon this offering, the question for us in this passage, one of them is, What's Jesus worth to you and I? What's He worth to you? And the question that comes right after it is, then how do you show that worth? The second truth this morning we see in this passage is that worship is costly. Worship is costly. I think this is formative, by the way, in our own personal daily devotion to Jesus Christ. But it ought to be formative also in, in every way in which we carry ourselves about, even in, in, in setting ourselves up for worship. When, when God was judging David and Israel for taking a census rather than trusting in God. David ran to a Jebusite named Arana. A-R-A-U-N-A-H. Probably a wealthy man. And he wanted to purchase a piece of his property in order to offer up a burnt offering and a peace offering unto the Lord. There was a plague upon the land and people were dying and, and David wanted to intercede and plead for God for his mercy. He wanted a piece of land where he could set up a burnt offering and just go before the Lord and say, Lord, please, I have done wrong and we have done wrong. Please show mercy where we repent of our sins. And Arana wanted to give David the land. David, with all the wealth of the land, essentially, 
had, had plenty of money to give to him, and Arana could have made a, a very nice uh, sale that day. And so Arana was honored, and, and maybe even was tracking along with the religious aspects of it, the repentance and worshipful aspect. But nonetheless, Arana wanted to, to offer his land for free for David. But listen to what David says in 2 Samuel 20, 20, 24, 24. 2 Samuel 24, 24. But the king said, David said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. I will not offer burnt offerings to my Lord that cost me nothing. So David bought the, the threshing floor and the oven for 50 shekels of silver. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is the most valuable thing we own. It isn't your house. It isn't your car. It isn't your bank account. And listen, it's not even your family. But our relationship with Jesus Christ is the most valuable thing we own. Nothing on earth and nothing in heaven is, is worth as much. You cannot buy a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's priceless. It's out of reach. And though it is good to serve the poor in circumstances, it was better to dwell with Jesus Christ and Mary, as she has been tracking Jesus, yes, she heard the lesson of taking care of the poor, but Mary is discerning that something is coming down the pike. She has been listening. He has said now three times, I'm going to lay down my body to be crucified. And so Mary anoints his body for burial. And whether or not she completely tracked it all, this is how God was viewing it. And this is how God was working it out. There is some indication, I believe, that she was believing upon his soon death. But if not, Jesus makes it clear that this is not only a humble act of extraordinary worship, but it's also a prophetic sign and an appropriate behavior in light of his soon sacrifice. So whether or not she's tracking, Jesus says, let it be known what she's doing. Mary of Bethany was a good listener and one of the best. She might have been thinking that this was the last time she would see Jesus alive. An author named Tasker says these evangelists make it clear that she had an intuitive appreciation of the significance of Christ's death, which the disciples had yet to grasp. She knows that he is ready and willing to die as the supreme act of love for his friends. And she rightly reckoned herself and her family to be his friends. And so she pours the fragrant perfume, her most costly possession, over his head as though she were anointing him as king. And so as Matthew tells us, we picture this for a moment, that Jesus is reclining at the table and she breaks open the box and she pours the oil on his head and later, Jesus says, she applies it in verse number 12, in pouring this ointment on my body, Jesus' body is, is covered in this oil. The oil is applied to his whole body. Might this be a picture that her faith is in the whole person of Jesus Christ? 
I think too often we are so narrow, so tunnel focused on on Christ. Maybe there's this one thing we're stuck on that we love about Christ, but but there's so much more about the greatness of His goodness and the greatness of His perfections that we just get stuck on one. But Jesus says, let me just turn the diamond, just one, just one click, just one, one millimeter, let me turn the diamond, behold greater things, or as great things about my beauty and about who I am. Let me just turn it a little bit. And Mary is, is pouring this oil, and this oil is covering His body. She loves all of Jesus. And God's incarnate Son will lay down His whole body on the cross soon. And there are three truths about how we love Jesus Christ and in this. And we see, number one, there are times when your love will appear or seem excessive or extravagant. There are times as a child of God, when you behold God, when you worship Christ, when your love will seem above and beyond. It will seem extravagant. And others might even perceive it as undeservedly so. Some might look upon your devotion and think you're some sort of fanatic. They might not understand your passion. They might not even agree with with the depth of your devotion. You might be misunderstood. You might even feel the heartache as a response to that yearning, desiring for them to know the love that you have been captured with. And there are times when, when others looking upon you will, will look at the love for which you have for Jesus Christ as you display it, and they will see and think it is excessive and it is extravagant. But there will be times when the excessive display of love for Jesus Christ is completely appropriate. And in this passage, Jesus says, this is, this is what she should be doing. Jesus is pleased and He says, it is good. It is lovely. I like it. Often devotion, often um, function gets more attention than Devotion. That is, often we're busy like Martha, right? Rather than loving like Mary. But the busyness is so easy to do. It's so attainable. It's so satisfying. It takes up time. There's, there's a result. Function usually gets more attention than devotion. Even doing good things. But here Jesus draws attention to the devotion. Notice there's three words that the disciples used in their reaction. Waste, sold, given. None of that is appropriate. All of that's function. All of that's function. As Mary broke open this box, let's trace how Matthew uses the words. He says in verse number 7, A woman came to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it out on his head as he reclined at the table. It's likely that this was Mary's most valuable possession 
And we notice here that Mary's most valuable possession works into the providence of God. Mary's most valuable possession will soak into the garments of Christ and even anoint his skin and his beard and prepare him for crucifixion. And her most valuable possession becomes part of God's plan for his son's crucifixion. Mary's most valuable possession, given in a worshipful act, becomes part of Jesus' crucifixion. Becomes part of the Gospels breaking open. And do you know that our attention should turn away from Mary's devotion in this and I think rightly so by the Spirit of God's leading. Do you know that God's most valuable possession was about ready to be broken open and spilled out on you? So let's take Mary's devotion off the pedestal. Fine example. But she didn't ever belong there. Jesus was broken open and poured out all over. God's most valuable possession used in the providence of God to bring you redemption. Jesus is the better oil. Pastor Golden said to me this morning as we were meditating on this passage together, Jesus is the better flask. And thirdly, the third truth this morning is there are times when, the sub-truth, there are times when appropriate is unexplainable. In none of the accounts, John, Mark, or Matthew, Mary never says a word. She never defends herself, never explains it. Why doesn't she explain it? Can you explain love? Is there a word? She doesn't say a word to Jesus before she even pours it out. Her heart told her to do it. And I notice here that one of the last good things done to Jesus Christ, maybe the last, is done by a sister in Christ. Not by a disciple of the twelve. If you can explain everything you do, it may mean that your devotion is not extraordinary. If you can explain everything you, you do, if you can calculate everything, if everything is just bean counting, if everything is just sliding things around and, uh, and justifying everything for what you do for Christ and, and then even secondarily for others, if you can explain everything you do, it might not be love. It doesn't mean when we can't explain something and it doesn't mean when we're extravagant in displaying that we misunderstand stewardship or that we are foolish 
we just notice in this passage here that her sacrifice, her offering of worship unto the Lord Jesus Christ was totally uncalculated. It didn't matter how much that cost. And she was new fully. We notice it was uncalculated. We also notice it is sacrificial. There is no getting that back. Once it's spilled out on him, there's no getting it back. It's sacrificial. And it was humble. It was as if nobody else was there. It was as if nobody else was there. It was just humble. Even though it was public. And we already noted it was extravagant. But I also noticed something here. You can't offer anything to God that is not broken. You can't offer anything to God that's not broken. So if it's not broke, break it. Say, what does that mean? Trying to just be philosophical there? No. Everything. We turn it unto the Lord's use for His glory. Time, talents, and treasure. We turn them back to Him. Glorify Him in those things, both in private adoration and in public display, in encouragement to the brothers. Who was getting the lesson here? Matthew saw this happen. And Matthew will die in Africa at the end of a spear. For Jesus Christ. He saw Mary. He, he saw her uncalculated, sacrificial, humble and extravagant worship. And he recorded it for us here. And so why in the world would we break things? Why would we say you can't offer anything to God that is not broken? Why would we say that? Well, because it's not yours anyways. Did you think that it was yours? Nothing is yours. Why did you think it was yours? It wasn't yours anyways. And listen, he's the only one that can use it for any good. He's the only one that can be glorified in it. You use it for your own ends. You glorify yourself. You use it for your own ends and whatever. But when we offer everything back unto him, he can use it. And, and if it's broken, listen, he can replace it. A sacrifice really doesn't seem to be the right word it doesn't fit when we recognize the sacrifice of Jesus Christ when we use the word sacrifice and even when we would use it in the means of our death or even our life as in Romans chapter 12. Is there really any comparison to anything we can sacrifice in relation to the supreme cost of Jesus Christ? No. And so he replaced it. Then the third final truth is that we need to set Jesus apart. And this is just a, a short and brief truth here for us to meditate on. And that is that Mary was setting Jesus apart in her own heart and understanding. He was someone different. He was someone different than her. 
He was someone different than the disciples. And he was certainly someone different than the criminals who would typically hang on the cross. Is Jesus someone different for you? Is he someone different from you? Or has he grown too common to you? Too mean? Too like you? Mary was setting Jesus apart for the moments to come. Others would jeer and scoff and spit upon him. And some of the disciples would turn away from him. But when Jesus would look down, I'm sorry, when when Mary would look upon Jesus in the coming days, she would see him as someone different than all the rest. In just three days, four days, she would see him as her risen Lord. She would see him as her Savior. Jesus is our Savior. And we should worship him that way. And as we close, I'd like to, to put on top of, on this passage a layer here for you to consider. The classic passage of Psalm 23 The Lord is my shepherd. But what if the Lord is, what if the Lord is the sheep that prepares the table before me in the presence of my enemies? Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runs over. sort of what's taking place here, isn't it? Prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Caiaphas and the priests are plotting. Prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup runs over so that surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life because he was the shepherd and he was the sheep and so now he spills himself out before you and we worship him that way let's pray